The following study is a Sunday morning lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. We'll take our text from our upcoming Wednesday. That's what our practice is. So would you turn to Isaiah chapter 9 for today's lesson in the Word. Isaiah chapter 9. We have here a, uh, a single verse. You know, like I said, we'll do the whole chapter Wednesday, but the single verse, this might be one of the most power-packed verses in all the Bible. Who knows? Maybe for the book of Isaiah, but it's, it's a verse that we could spend the rest of our lives talking about. It's a verse that some of you might even recognize, even if you're not a Christian, uh, even if you're an unbeliever and you've only heard, you know, Linus uh, in the Peanuts and the Christmas special uh, talk about some of this stuff. In fact, this is kind of a Christmassy sort of verse. Um, and same with other parts of Isaiah. Isaiah was the guy who foretold the coming Messiah and spent a lot of time doing that. What's interesting, though, is we've been studying Isaiah and we've seen the black backdrop of just kind of the darkness, the, the condition of Israel at that time was horrible. Man, the people were doing all kinds of sinful stuff, and they were uh, in darkness. And Isaiah spent most of his time prophesying, you guys are going down because of your own sin and your unrepentant heart toward the Lord. But then Isaiah would sort of weave into all this woe and heaviness. He would say, but check out the light of God, the light of God. And then also he'd point to the light of the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. And that's, that's where we get all excited when we get into Isaiah because we recognize the dark stuff. One of the things about going through the Bible, um, there's several reasons why I love going verse by verse. One is um, you can't, you know, take a single verse and tweak it and twist it to use it for your uh, objective because all of your teaching, if you go verse by verse, you have to have it all fit together and work. Um, and if you end up trying to find a new twist on a little single verse, you end up with twisted scripture. Not a good plan. <laughs> But verse by verse gives you kind of a safety net for that. Number two, I found that where we're at in life is where we're at in the Bible. And here's this dark section of Isaiah where he's handing out the woes and the people are feeling woe, woe unto me. Isaiah said, woe is me, Isaiah says. Um, and, uh, and we kind of find ourselves in a sort of a time of woe as we're under the quarantine of the coronavirus, lockdown, shelter in place. Um, and a deadly disease, a virus that's, uh, you know, covering the globe right now. And who would have guessed we'd been in a pandemic of 2020? Um, and, and what I find is, once again, here we are in Isaiah kind of paralleling um, sort of a dark season for the Jews, and we find ourselves there. And where we're at in the Bible is where we're at in life. But even in the midst of the darkness, Isaiah pops out this beautiful promise um, but before I share with you, I promise, can I show you the dark backdrop we left off on Wednesday night? Um, in fact, if you back up to chapter 8, let's review kind of how we landed last Wednesday night. Um, it says in verse 19, Isaiah eight nineteen, it says, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, to wizards that peep and mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? In other words, these people were all going to wizards and witches and necrom, uh, you know, necromancy to try to talk to the dead and all this weird, dark, cultic, kind of occultic kind of behavior. And verse 20, he says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. The reason people are not going to the word of God, instead they're going to these wizards and people that peep and mutter. <laughs> Interesting phrase there. We looked at that on Wednesday but there's no light in them. And then verse 21, it gets darker. 
And they shall pass through it, hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves. Freak out is the idea. And curse their king and their God, and look upward, and they shall look unto the earth. And behold, trouble and darkness and dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. The end. That's how we left Wednesday night. <laughs> Pretty dark passage. What are these people doing? They're turning to wizardry and, and you know, dark, you know, black magic type stuff. And then it says here, they look to the earth for answers. Boy, that sounds like us today. We have all kinds of darkness in our world, and we're turning to everything but the Lord, largely as a, as a world. Um, and we find ourselves in this situation. It says, hungry. They came, and they, they were so hungry, they started to fret themselves. Um, that, that means to freak out. And then the, the words in verse 22, you know, that they were in darkness, dimness of anguish, driven to darkness. That's the condition. See, when you go to Shane Company and buy a diamond ring, if you're a young married or new, you know, newly engaged couple, one of the things they'll do to show their fancy diamonds and stuff is uh, they'll pull out a black piece of velvet, a mat that's black. And they'll put the diamonds on that. And the reason why, they found that the, the, the diamond sparkles the brightest with the black backdrop of the black velvet. And it's a, sales, it's a sales technique, you know, that they use to try to get you to buy the diamond. Well, in the same way, Isaiah puts the black backdrop um, there over Israel saying, you guys are in darkness and you guys are hungry and, and, and freaking out. But then he drops the diamond right on that black backdrop here in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. And let's see it sparkle as we take a look at this beautiful verse. It says here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Wow. Massively cool verse right here, speaking of Jesus the Messiah who was coming. Now, remember in chapter 7, just a few uh, days ago, we were looking at this, where um, there's kind of a precursor to this verse in Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel foretelling of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ called Emmanuel, which Emmanuel means God with us. So Isaiah's kind of ramping up his prophecies concerning the Messiah. And here's one of the great ones. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Wow. That's, that's a powerful thing. Let's break this down. You see, there's so much in this verse, we could spend a lifetime. Um, if this is the only verse you had, and you're on a desert island, and you were just thinking about, you can think about this for the rest of your life, because there's so much here. Um, and I want to break it down into seven little divisions that we see here that are pretty profound, pretty powerful. Number one, if you're jotting down notes, you can maybe break this down and think, think through this with me. Number one, for unto us a child is born. A child is born. Now, first of all, who's the us here? Humanity. 
not just the Jews in Israel during that day with Isaiah, but this is, this is a prophecy that goes past, you know, just the Jews there in Israel, but it goes to the Jews, but also to us in 2020 in Portland, Oregon. We are people who can say, for unto us a child is born. Um, it's for the whole world. The world is in need of something. And, and it says, for unto us is given. We are given a gift. Have you ever tried to find the perfect gift for someone? It's so hard. Some people are really hard to shop for. But the perfect gift, you know, it includes stuff like, you know, you want to make them happy. If you give them a gift, ho- hopefully that gift will make someone happy. Um, you also want it to be fun, but maybe also a little bit of practical. If you go too practical, it can be kind of a, um, an insult. So you have to balance practical and fun. So you want it to be making people happy, fun, and practical, but you want it to be sophisticated, perhaps, but not complicated. You want it to be um, something that never runs out of batteries or runs out or breaks down. You want it to be lasting, nothing this junky. You want it to be guaranteed for all of eternity. <laughs> That'd be the best thing, not just a one-year or three-year, but what if you had a guaranteed to work for all of eternity. That's, that sounds like a good gift. And, and, and what if you, you want it to be really expensive, like astronomical cost and yet free at the same time? Well, Brett, that sounds like an impossible gift. Um, it is impossible except for right here. This is the only place in the world you're going to find a gift that does all of those things. And it's a gift from God. For unto us is given a child a child is born. For unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. That's the gift that we're looking at here. So, so the number one on the list here, unto us, a child is born. Why a child? Why did God give to us a child? Um, And what does that have to do with anything? Well, it's so full of meaning. Uh, First of all, we learned in chapter 7, verse 14, that um, unto us was born unto a virgin, a, a, a child, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. One of the things that we know of in Scripture is that Jesus is God visiting humanity. Emmanuel, God with us. And so we see this, that the God came and became a man. That's what is so miraculous about the gospel message. God becomes a man. And do you know how big of a step down that is? Um, how big of a step down? It's hard for us to even fathom that. It'd be like that illustration if you died today and went to heaven and God caused you to fly through the universe with him and and you say, well, are we going to go to heaven? He said, well, I got something I want you to see. And he flies out to a planet and it's a black planet and it seems to be wiggling and weird and you look closer and it's it's a planet covered with black carpenter ants. Just ugly carpenter ants, but you look closer and they're, they're mean carpenter ants and they hate each other. And God says, yeah, they're ugly and everything, but he's showing you this plant of ants, you know, a planet of ants. And, and he says, but I love those ants. I care about them. And you say, well, that's great, Lord. Can we go to heaven now? And he says, no, I, I need a favor from you. And, and the Lord looks at you and says, would you become an ant so that you could go down and speak ant language and tell them that I love them? I, I've tried to express my love to them, but they've rebelled against me. They don't care about me. So I want you to become an ant so that you can, you know, speak to those ants. You're like, well, then I can become me again? Nope, you're going to be ant for all eternity. In fact, the ants are going to hate you, and when you get there, they're going to, like, going to hate you so much they're going to kill you while you're telling them that I love you. And, uh, and then they're going to eat you up. That sounds like a good plan. 
You see, for you to become an ant to save an ant planet, that you say, but that's ridiculous. It is when you compare that God became a man. The step down from you and me becoming an ant, well, that's a certain step down, I'll admit. You're better than an ant, and so am I. But the distance between you and an ant is tiny compared to the distance of God to humanity. God stepped down into humanity and became a man and became one of us to tell us of his love for, for, for him and to save us from ourselves and save us from our sins. What an amazing thing that God became a man. But here's where it even gets more crazy. He not only became man, but we forget this part. He became a baby. There's nothing more vulnerable than a baby in this world, I think. You know, humanity is kind of funny because we're not so good as babies. If you look at the animal kingdom, there's certain animals that are born um, right out of the, you know, uh, the womb, if you would, and they can just go along fine. There's fish that can swim and little animals that can walk uh, the first day of their life. You and I, it took us forever to figure out how to walk and talk and think and do anything. There's nothing more helpless than a baby. Why did God become a baby? That's what it says here, for unto us a child is born. Now, why the baby? Well, there's a couple reasons, I believe. One is because he, the Bible says, Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest, that's Jesus, who knows every hurt and pain and suffering. He's tempted in all points like as we have been tempted. He knows everything about what we've been through because he's been through it. He's even been through the birth canal and birth process and being a child. He knows all of the things that we've felt and then some. So it was just to be relatable to us. Number two, he was born as a baby to fulfill prophecy. Um, the, the, The prophecy that a baby would be born in Bethlehem and that that would be the Messiah. Jesus did that to fulfill prophecy. I love it for fulfilling a prophecy to uh, relate to us. And this concept for unto us a child is born. It speaks of God's humanity, how he became a, a person, a human. And I love that. For unto us a child is born, speaking of his humanity. Then that brings us to the second part of this. For unto us a child is born, number one, but number two, unto us a son is given. Now you might say that's redundant or repetitive. Okay, so a child is born, a son is given. Same thing. Why is it repeating that? Is that just Isaiah being artistic and repetitive? No. This is a very different concept. For unto us a child is born, but unto us a son is given. We have to understand he's the son of God. That, That he's God's only begotten son. Um, One of the things God wants you and me to understand is that Jesus is God's son, born of a virgin. There was no no earthly father. It was Jesus being born of a virgin. Part of the virgin birth deal is that he's God's only begotten son. And the idea of the son speaks of his divinity. While unto us a child is born speaks of his humanity, unto us a son is given speaks of his divinity. Well, which one was he, Brett? Was he man or was he God? And the answer is both. He was 100% God and he was 100% man. Now this speaks of uh, what we would call the Trinity. Now, Now this is where it gets a little complicated. And some of you wrestle with this. I remember when I was a young man uh, as a pastor, I, th- I thought I'm going to nail this down, this whole Trinity thing, because I had too many questions. And so I spent a lot of time reading some of the greatest thinkers about what the Bible had to say about the Trinity. And um, there was a lot of great stuff. But what I found is even the brainiest of them ended pretty much saying, 
But the, 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 the Trinity is greatly a mystery that we and this side of heaven will never really figure out. <laughs> you got to kind of believe in the Trinity without knowing the math or the science or the physics of it. Because you and I, we say, how can God be both man and both that at the same time be human? And how did God become a man? And if Jesus is God, then why was Jesus talking to God in the Garden of Gethsemane? Like there's some real practical questions about this. And some people, if we're, care- if we're not careful, we can sort of shut it down and say, that's ridiculous because that doesn't work mathematically. But my question is, do you really want to go against God in the math of this when God says this is the way it is? And, and truly, we don't understand all this stuff. We, we, there's so much we still don't understand about physics and science and where everything comes from. And I mean, you know, uh, the, the deeper you get into some of that stuff, the more you realize we don't know. And I've always said, and it's been said before, you know, um, if God were small enough for, for us to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. And I believe that in God and his sovereignty and his omniscience and om- omnipotence, that's all power, all knowing. I think he's just doing something that we just don't figure out until we get on the other side of heaven. And that's what Paul the Apostle said. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he said, Great is the mystery of godliness. Without controversy. It, it, it's not an argument. that th- This is a mystery of godliness. That he said, God, which is the, you know, God seen on the one. God manifest in the spirit, or pardon me, manifest in the, in the flesh, he says, which that would be Jesus. So you got God the Father seated on the throne, um, manifest in the flesh, that's Jesus. And then he said, justified in the Spirit, capital S, which is the Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity right there. Great is the mystery of God. This without controversy, he says, God, the Father, was manifest in the flesh, Jesus, justified in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The mystery of the Trinity. So what does that do? Well, if we can't really nail it down mathematically what the Trinity is, I do believe that the Lord does want us to understand two sides of a coin that are hard for us to to accept, but it's just nonetheless true. And that's this, that God sent his only begotten son, that's Jesus. And God's son came and lived among us, died on the cross for our sins. That, That was God's son who did that. The other side of the coin is, That was actually God who became a man, lived among us. God in the flesh. And and so who knows how that works out practically. We just know that's what the Bible teaches. Let me show you a little bit about that. Because uh, I'm not making this up. And you should search the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is true or false. But, you know, Isaiah says, uh, for example, in Isaiah chapter 44, he says that there's really only one God. Some people believe that when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about three gods in one. Nope one God in three persons. Um, it's, 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 um, it's a mystery. But this is where it kind of gets tricky. Isaiah 44, 6 says, thus saith the Lord, and the word Lord there is Jehovah, uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the, the King of Israel, thus saith the Lord of Israel, King of Israel, and his Redeemer, uh, I am the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. He is the only God. We are not a polytheistic religion. We believe in monotheism, that God is the only true and living God. Any other thing that claims to be God is a false God. Um, some, some people will say, oh, there's many gods. There's just one you know, creator God or whatever. Be careful with that. 
What, what the Bible teaches is there's, there's one God, period. There's a lot of little false gods. So like when the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt have no other gods before me, the idea is false gods. There's no other false gods. And um, um, Jesus confirmed this, by the way, in John's Gospel, um, chapter 17, where he was talking about this notion of other gods. In John 17, 3, um, Jesus said, and this is life eternal, that they might know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. There's only one true God, Jesus said. All others are false. So Isaiah steps that there's one God, um, and he's called the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In, in the Greek, it's the Alpha and the Omega. There's only one of those, Isaiah makes a, a real solid point. And he does this several times, by the way, in the book of Isaiah. There's only one God. There is no one like him. There's no one else. Only one God. Meanwhile, you go to the book of Revelation, and suddenly you have this beautiful picture of Jesus in his resurrected state um, described there in Revelation chapter 1. And John, the apostle, is receiving this revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's beautiful. But Jesus, it says, when, when John, the apostle, verse 17, Revelation 1, 17, it says, when, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. What? Jesus, in this, you know, resurrected appearance of Christ before John the Apostle, he's saying, I am the first and the last. Isaiah said there's only one first and the last, and that's Jehovah. You see, Jesus here is once again um, claiming to be Jehovah, right here. And, and he also does it at the very end, not only in the first chapter of Revelation, it's also in the last chapter of Revelation, where Jesus speaks and says in uh, Revelation twenty-two thirteen, this is Jesus speaking, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments. And he goes on in verse 16, and I, Jesus, have sent mine angels to testify unto you these things in churches. Jesus here claims, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. There's only one Alpha and Omega, and that's God, and it's Jesus. Well, those are two. Nope, one. So this is a, a, a tricky thing. You know, great is the mystery of godliness. God, the Father, manifest in the flesh. In John chapter 1, we have the same thing. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All that's in John chapter 1. In the, the Word was God, and then it says, and the Word, which is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. All the same. So you say, okay, Brad, I, I get that. So, so Jesus claims to be God. Remember when Philip, the disciple, he told Jesus, you know, in John 14, 8, Philip said, Lord, you know, show us the Father and it'll suffice us. And Jesus said, he said unto him, he that has seen me hath seen the Father. Um, that's, that's John 14, 8. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So this idea that Jesus is God, Emmanuel, God with us, the Bible's really clear on that one. Meanwhile, the other side of the coin says that Jesus is God's Son, His only begotten Son. And while it's hard for us to figure that out, let's put that aside just for a second, the figuring out part, and realize that God wants you and me to know that there was, there's a Father-Son relationship between Himself and His being of the Holy Trinity. There's something going on there that goes outside of our time and space and our laws and physics, and that is that, is that God gave His Son. And it's kind of a big deal. What do you mean a big deal? Well, the big deal is this. 
that God loved his son and he gave his son. This is so important for you to understand. See, here's the deal. In, in, in Bible um, hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for saying how to rightly divide the word of truth, how to interpret scripture, and, and, um, and there's a lot of neat principles about studying scripture and hermeneutics. But one of those principles of her- hermeneutics is called the principle of first mention. When something is first mentioned in the Bible, it's there to show you and me something really important about that topic. And when you see it first mentioned, you can kind of put some weight into that first mention, helping define whatever you're talking about. Here's a great example, the word love. The first mention of love in the Bible tells us something about the word. What what would you imagine um, God, you know, first mentioning love in his Bible, was it between the love of a husband and a wife, a boyfriend and his girlfriend, a, a love for hot fudge sundaes or puppies or cats? No. The word love is first employed in the Bible, in the Hebrew text, in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham, God says, Abraham, I want you to take your only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. Uh, That's the first mention of love. It's about a father and his love for the son. Now, do you guys remember what was happening in that chapter of Genesis 22? The father was taking his son up Mount Moriah to sacrifice him on an altar. That's radical. Um, The one that he loved, the son that he loved, he took him up there to sacrifice him. And and, you know, Isaac, who was not a little child as the coloring picture, probably a young 30-year-old guy, and he was carrying the wood with his dad, walking up this mountain of Moriah, carrying wood on his shoulders. And he said, Dad, I got the wood. We got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And God says, you know, to, or Abraham says, you know, God will prov- provide himself a lamb. So you know the story. Uh, eventually a ram was caught in the thicket, and Isaac wasn't sacrificed. But that was a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. God's son going up the same mountain geographically. Did you know the Old Testament story of Genesis 22 is Mount Moriah, which is the same mountain called Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, where Jesus walked up that mountain and was carrying wood on his shoulders, just like Isaac. The picture is perfect. And I'm only scratching the surface on the picture of Isaac being a type of Jesus readying to be sacrificed on the hill there. But the first mention of love in the Bible is Genesis 22, where a father loved his son in the context of readying to being sacrificed. That's interesting. The first mention of love in the New Testament is in the Gospels, of course, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the Bible. The first mention of love in Matthew is, is when God spoke from heaven, when Jesus was baptized, and he boomed from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. That was the first mention of love in Matthew's gospel. It's a love for the Father to the Son. God the Father to the Son, Jesus. Same with Mark. Same story. Baptism, this is my beloved Son. Same with Luke. Beloved Son, baptism, God to Jesus. Okay, so are you with me so far? So the first mention of love in the beginning of the Bible is the Father and His Son. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Father and Son's love. First mention every time. The first mention of love in the Gospel of John changes direction a little bit in kind of an interesting way. There it says, um, the first mention of love is a little verse called John chapter 3, verse 16. (laughs) Some of you even know that, don't you? For God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Isn't it amazing? This is my only begotten son whom I love, Genesis 22, Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
But in John, the, the, the love for the Father to the Son, what happens? It says, for God so loved the world. That's us, all of us. He loved us so much that he gave his only begotten, and I might add, beloved Son, so that the world might be saved, that who, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Does anybody sense that that's just a really powerful thing that God's kind of tucked away in Scripture? That his massive love for his son is there, which we don't understand, but he loved you and me enough so much that he saved us, and it was not an easy thing. It'd be kind of like if, can you imagine a horrible thing like this? And I'm sorry if this is taking you in a really ugly, dark place, but let's just say tomorrow they find out there's a new virus on the earth, and just for fun, let's call it COVID-20. <laughs> and, and only this one, in like, unlike COVID-19, it's deadly to everyone. Everyone's going to die, they say. The CDC and our president and everybody comes out and says, there's a new virus and everybody's going to die. And we have no hope. And, 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 and the whole world's doomed. And you end up taking one of your children to the pediatrician because they're, you know, sick or whatever. And they draw some blood and they realize this child has something that is amazing in their body with their bone marrow and their makeup that only they can fix the problem of COVID-20. Again, I'm making this up. And, and you as a parent realize, wow, my child just might be the solution to all the world's problem with this, this virus. But the doctor says the only problem is for us to extract what we need, it will take the child's life. What would you do as a mom or dad? Would you be willing to sacrifice your child to save the whole world? I know that sounds ridiculous, and the example probably is horrifying, but that's the point. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There was something there that God wants you to understand, and me too, that there was massive sacrifice made there. And that's why this is so different. For unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. It was a massive sacrifice of God to send his only begotten son who he loved to save the world who was wrecked with sin and ugliness, headed for hell and destruction. But God was willing to lay down the life of his son. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is he died, but then he rose up from the grave. And that was last week's lesson. Um, and we can uh, rejoice about that. But that's the thing about this, this. There's so much mystery encased in this single little verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Speaking of, you know, this Trinity. And by the way, if you're still doubting about the Trinity, the Trinity is even in this, this verse, if you would, or at least God the Father and God the Son, all in the same verse, talking about the same person. For unto us a child is born, Jesus. A son is given, Jesus. And it says, the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. But wait a minute, Mighty God? How many gods are there? Only one. So here in this verse, it's showing that the Son that's coming, Jesus the Messiah, is God. He's the Mighty God, and it even gets more crazy, Everlasting Father. So the Son, the child that's born, the Son that's given, is also called Everlasting Father because he is God. So if it's making your head spin a little bit, join the crowd. Great is the mystery of godliness without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness, Paul told Timothy. So I hope you're seeing, yes, we believe in the Trinity. It's one God in three persons, the God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, there's a strange mystery about the fact that God gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
Wow, powerful stuff. For unto us a child is born, number one. Unto us a son is given, number two. Number three, consideration, it says the government shall be upon his shoulder. When did or when will this happen? When did the government, when was the government placed on the, the shoulders of Jesus? When will that happen? Is it, has it already happened or is it yet to be? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it has happened and it will happen. I think there's two expressions of this, how the government was born. Government in the Bible can be used in sort of an idiom as, as talking about laws, the government, the laws, the rules of the land, the l- rules of humanity. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And I believe we saw, saw that expressed when Jesus carried the wooden beam of the cross on his shoulders. The government, if you would, for these people was the law of Moses, uh, the Jews' laws of the Old Testament. Did Jesus come to do away with the law? No, the Bible says he came to fulfill the law. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law and was the satisfaction for the law when he died on the cross for the sins of the world. People that did not keep the law, people who failed and were guilty of breaking the law, Jesus died on the cross and bore that government, if you would, on his shoulders. So yes, Jesus has fulfilled that part already, but that's spiritually. Did you know there's coming a time where practically, logistically, physically, Christ is going to come and the government's going to be on his shoulders in a literal way? That's called the second coming of Christ when he returns to rule and reign on this earth. It's called the time of the kingdom. Jesus taught us to pray for that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what Jesus is going to do. You see, I believe there's going to be the rapture of the church. Then there's going to be a seven-year period called the tribulation period. And then after that, it's the millennial kingdom, 1,000 years of peace and blessing where Christ rules and the government will be on his shoulders at that time. Uh, That's something that we look forward to. And by the way, there's some good Christian people who have, I think, maybe some misguided understanding about the government and the way it's going to work out, uh, the kingdom. Some Christians believe we're living in the kingdom right now. Oh, I hope that's not true. Why? Because the Bible says during the kingdom, there's going to be peace and prosperity, an end of transgression. Like when you read Daniel chapter 9, it's going to be a glorious time. And if we're in the kingdom now, man, God was wrong. It's not time of peace. And it's not time of end of transgressions. In fact, it's getting worse. You see, the way I see the Bible, it says it's going to get worse before the kingdom. And it's going to get really, really bad before the kingdom. And I see that happening. That's why we're in quarantine right now. That's why there's disease in the earth. That's why there's wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and stuff like that. People that believe in dominion theology or or, uh, kingdom now, um, there's all these different views. uh, You know, the Catholics sort of teach uh, integralism where, you know, we integrate ourselves into the political world and hopefully usher in the kingdom by us bringing in uh, the kingdom of God. That's not happening. We're doing a horrible job if that's what we're supposed to be doing. I believe it's Jesus alone is going to come and set up his kingdom. Read Daniel chapter 2. There's that great prophecy of the stone that would be cut without hands, would come down from the mountain and smash the kingdoms of this earth. And that stone would grow into a mountain of its own and be an everlasting kingdom. And that stone is none other than that rock of offense, the stone of stumbling, Jesus Christ. And he's going to set up his kingdom, according to Daniel chapter 2. But was it cut with human hands? Was it us bringing in his kingdom? No. It was a stone cut without hands. 
Daniel chapter 2 says. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that's, that's the Lord. He's going to bring in his kingdom. And you and I, what are we supposed to do until then? We should be all about his kingdom. We should be sharing the good news of his kingdom and the salvation that gets you into that kingdom. Uh, that should be all what we're about. But us ushering in the kingdom, that's his job. He's going to do that. And praise the Lord for that. So when the government is upon his shoulders, I believe that is going to be finally realized when he returns, the second coming of Christ. His first coming, he bore the government on his shoulders spiritually. His second coming, he's going to bear the government on his shoulders literally. Uh, It's going to be a great time. Well, that brings us to the next one. We have number one, for unto us a child is born. Number two, unto us a son is given. Number three, the government shall be upon his shoulders. Number four, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, the question of the day is, do you have a comma in your Bible between the wonderful and the counselor in that verse? My Bible says that. Wonderful comma, counselor, comma, mighty God, comma, everlasting Father, comma. See, the tricky part is the Hebrew language doesn't have that kind of punctuation. We don't have commas in Hebrew language. So the, the translators are putting commas where they think they should go. Um, and it's understandable that there's times like this where there could be a little debate. All the other commas, I think, are legit there. Um, that was the intent. But the question is, is it wonderful counselor, all one concept, or is it wonderful and then counselor? Well, Brett, that's, that's uh, you know, tomato, tomato. What's the, what's the difference? Well, it's, it's probably not super important. I'll tell you why. Because he is wonderful. Wouldn't you agree? And he is the counselor, yes. Is he a wonderful counselor? Yes. <laughs> so it's all true. Um, but what's Isaiah trying to say here? In my opinion, the, the comma shouldn't be there. And it's not just mine. A lot of linguistic scholars uh, make that argument. But maybe even more than the linguistic evidence, it's Isaiah himself says a very similar thing later on in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 29. Listen to what he says here. And this one, there's no dispute. Um, it says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Isaiah says this in a different way, but saying the same thing. He's wonderful in counsel. And that, there's no debate on that. So I believe just the evidence of Isaiah's writing, we, we very much believe that he's calling him wonderful counselor. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's the thing. That's the next one. He's, his name shall be called wonderful counselor. This is one of the most, perhaps, in my opinion, underappreciated aspects of our Savior Jesus, that he's called Wonderful Counselor. And I believe it has to do with our culture. We, in modern-day Christianity, don't like to think of Jesus as our Wonderful Counselor. It's not hip, nor is it cool. Plus, it's not good job security for people who do counseling. <laughs> if, if we look at Jesus, who's the Wonderful Counselor, and we say, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, Jesus, that's great, esoteric, spiritual truth, he's our Wonderful Counselor, but I have real problems and I need a person with skin on to tell my problems to. Now, I got to say this disclaimer because uh, people get all up in a tizzy when I talk like this. And, and, and I got to say it, AC Creek, we have a lot of certified licensed counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists. We have people in our church who are employed in those things. And, and like I've always said, there is a place for that. And, and you know what? We even, we even use that as a, as a ministry team. We do counseling here. We have counselors on staff that just spend time counseling people. So we see validity in counseling. We see validity, and sometimes we'll take people who might just go outside of the scope and the level of which we can counsel, and we'll defer them to uh, someone who's trained specifically 
in a certain area, we, we tap into that. So don't be offended if you're a counselor or if you're certified or have a degree in psychology. Don't get all upset and up in a tizzy um, because people do get upset when I talk about this. But don't forget what I just said. Everybody always forgets that part. But I wonder if we have moved away from the wonderful counselor because we have so many other counselors. Um, there is safety in a multitude of counselors. The Bible teaches that. And so we, we abide by that. But I think the part that we tend to forget is that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's the one that can give us direction and wisdom for our lives. And Jesus is the one who taught us, didn't he, their, uh, you know, beautiful Sermon on the Mount when he said, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. Seek him and his kingdom. Seek Jesus. Um, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. And sadly, I think people, because we need jerk, we, oh, I've got a problem, and we, we go and make an appointment before we seek Jesus, the wonderful counselor. And uh, I wonder how many people, their problems would have been solved had they sought Jesus Christ through prayer and went to their knees and sought Jesus. Went to the Word of God, which remember we, we talked about it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Christ in a written Word that we can tap into and hear from the wonderful Counselor. And, and I feel that so many people have forsaken the wonderful Counselor because we've got mediocre Counselors apart from Jesus. Are you saying I'm mediocre compared to Jesus? Yes. <laughs> mediocre at best. And that's me too. I've been counseling people for 35 years uh, in ministry. And I would say compared to Jesus, you better go with Jesus. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, not me. Um, but here's the thing. There is a place for counseling and especially a counselor that points to Jesus and his word. That's, that's really good. But I wonder if people are actually not only not getting the help they need, but they're avoiding going to the wonderful counselor where all the help is found. Man, I got to tell you, this might sound harsh, but don't be shocked if you go to a professional counselor for years and years and you find yourself still spinning your wheels, still struggling, still depressed, still anxious, still freaked out. Don't be shocked if you have not gone first to Jesus, the wonderful counselor. You got to go first to him. Seek ye first him. Now, if you're mad at me right now and you're a counselor, um, it's time for you to repent because I'm just saying what scripture says. If you have a problem with seeking first Jesus, then you have a problem with Jesus. And uh, that's your problem, <laughs> not mine. Uh, I hope you, you people are hearing me because if I sound like a fire and brimstone preacher on this point, it's because I've had to watch too many people's lives just totally messed up because they wouldn't go to the wonderful counselor. Well, what makes him so wonderful? Well, first of all, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are wiser than our thoughts. And he knows all things. But it's what comes after in our verse that it even makes it better. He's not only the wonderful counselor here in our text, but check out the next one. And this is point number five, the mighty God. Our wonderful counselor is also the mighty God. Is your counselor a mighty God? If they claim to be that, then you should probably quit that counselor. Um, there's only one wonderful counselor who's also mighty God, and he's got the power to do. See, counselors on this, in this world, we can tell you what to do, and here's what you need to do and think, and here's, here's your prescription or whatever. Um, but it's only God who's the mighty God, who's the counselor, who's actually got the power to change and help and affect your life. He's called mighty God. 
Um, man, I love that part of our, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The same God that was able to say, let there be light, and all of a sudden, there's the sun. This huge mass of burning you know, gas or whatever and, and matter. It's just uh, so hot and bright. God just spoke that into existence. That's some pretty mighty, powerful stuff. That same God that created the heavens and the earth by the speaking into the, the, the existence of the world is the same God that's your wonderful counselor. Um, there's no counselor on earth that's got that on his resume. Mighty God. You say, okay, Brett, that's great. I believe that he's the wonderful counselor. I believe that he's mighty God, but does he really care about me? He's got everybody else on the planet to worry about, and, and, um, and I don't know that he really cares about me and my situation. Well, that's the next one. Number six, he's called the everlasting father. Everlasting father. If you're a child of God, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you've become a Christian and have accepted Christ, not only is he your wonderful counselor and mighty God, but he's your everlasting father. And you loving parents know what this means. In Matthew seven eleven, it says, uh, you know, you fathers being evil, how to know how, know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more does the father in heaven know how to give good gifts to those that ask? God is, makes, the, the nicest father on this planet looks like an evil person compared to the love of God. So not only is he a wonderful counselor, mighty God, but he's an everlasting father and he looks at you as a kid that he loves. He's, you're one of his children. And he's not spread thin. He, he, he's infinite, so he can give you his undivided attention and he can give me his undivided attention and the nearly eight billion people on this planet, if he wants to, he can give them all of their, uh, his undivided attention because he lacks for nothing. And he's this loving father to anyone that will be called a child of God, anyone who accepts Christ. God loves you as a father loves his children and he knows what's good for his children. I love the relationship we have with this wonderful counselor, mighty God. He's also our our everlasting father. He's a father. Jesus taught us to pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Man, I hope you see God as the father, not God as Godfather. Some of you are freaked out by God. I think he's mad at me and he's going to kill me. No, that's the Godfather. He's father God. He's the one who loves you as a father loves his kids and even then some. So, you know, you got the wonderful counselor who's mighty, but he also loves you as a father loves his children. Uh, man, I love this. As we see this description of, of Jesus, we see that he is God, the father as well. What a powerful, powerful truth. So he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And then finally, lastly, he's also called the prince of peace. Um, now, this is so true in so many ways. When Jesus comes to rule and reign in the kingdom, like we were talking about before, he's going to usher in a peace that nobody even could even fathom. Um, Jesus said, peace give I to thee, not as the world gives, give I thee. Jesus gives a peace that's like, not like anything the world has to offer. That's again, I'm not trying to get you to go to the wonderful counselor to, to uh, not, you know, give counselors a job. I'm just saying, man, if you want real peace, Go to the Prince of Peace. Now, the Prince of Peace implies that he's a prince and he's not the king yet. Well, it's kind of true in that Jesus is the prince that he's coming to reign and rule on this earth as king. But right now, the Bible talks about how Satan is the prince of darkness, prince of the world, God of this world, as he's called. And when Satan is displaced, then Jesus is going to come 
and rule and reign. And he's going to bring an everlasting righteousness and a, and, and a peace like no other. But I wonder if this Prince of Peace description has more to do with, less to do, I should say, with the, uh, you know, global, uh, you know, peace and wars and all that stuff, and maybe a little more to do with your relationship to God. Because you and I, we need to be restored to God. And, and that has everything to do with the peace that Jesus offers. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, being justified by faith. What's justification? It's that doctrine where when you're forgiven as a Christian, you're just as if you'd never sinned at all. He remembers your sins no more. You're as good as gold. That's justification. Uh, Therefore, being justified by faith, not by works, but by faith, believing in God, it says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. When you and I sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, let's start there. Before they sinned, they had peace with God. Remember the Bible says they were walking with God in the cool of the day there in the Garden of Eden. What a glorious time that is. It lasted for like 10 seconds. Why? Because Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was the first thing they did? They ran and hid themselves from who? Who else was there to hide from? God. They were hiding from God and suddenly they were not at peace with God because they sinned against God. And they tried to cover up themselves with fig leaves, scratchy as they were. I've seen fig leaves in the Middle East. Not a good idea to uh, sew up fig leaves and make that your clothes. But that's what they did. And, um, and, uh, and then God graciously did something really amazing, slew an animal. First mention of sacrifice in the Bible, by the way. And what was that animal used for? To cover their nakedness, their sin, if you would. So there was like a sacrifice, bloodshed, and then the sin covered. You know, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. It's an amazing picture right there in the Garden of Eden. And once they were covered in those, that sacrifice, they could talk to God again. But they were still, you know, um, in sin. The good news is when Jesus Christ came, he was the lamb that died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. And we were reconciled to the Father, Romans tells us. There was a reconciliation. When our sin separated us, Isaiah even talks about it, Isaiah 59.1. It's not that the Lord's hand is short that he cannot touch you or his, dear, his ear is not deaf that he cannot hear you, but it's your sin that separates you from God. So Jesus is the one, because of the cross, the shedding of his innocent blood, he reconciles us and he becomes the Prince of Peace. And according to Romans 5.1, it's peace with God through Jesus Christ. You and I can be at peace with God because he's called the Prince of Peace. Jesus made that possible because of the shedding of his blood. Without that, you and I can't have peace with God. We're separated from God. We're against God apart from the blood of Christ. You see this, this verse, are you starting to see how we can just sit around and talk about this forever? Man, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Would you meditate on that amazing and powerful verse uh, this week? Because we're only scratching the surface on this Sunday uh, doing that. And if you're one who's yet to accept Christ or believe as a Christian, to believe the cross and, and, and let that be the sacrifice. See, God doesn't make you be saved. He doesn't force you. 
you know, it's interesting. He could have. He could have just made us all be little robots and do exactly what he told us to do and make us do it. But for some reason, God loved you so much he wanted you to choose. Now, there might be some of you that are streaming who, for whatever reason, you're on here listening to this windbag of a preacher, and you're like, yeah, yeah, Christianity and religion and the church, and you got all these preconceived ideas and stuff. Um, but, but here's the thing I want to talk to you about. You need to be saved. Forget all your stupid college professors and all the s- stuff that they said that may or may not have been true. The truth is you're a sinner, and you know it. And the truth is, God exists. And this Bible, as much as they try to discredit the Bible, there's so much that I could talk about defending this Bible as it is in truth, the Word of God. But even if you put that aside for a second, even in the deepest part of your conscience, God built you to know that you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven of sin. If you're really honest with yourself, you know that you have great need. And you can deny it if you want to, but that's just you pushing down something that God is trying to make come up in your heart your need for salvation. And the stubborn person, if you really want to, you can be so stubborn that you can just say, I don't need that, I don't want that. And the Bible says, then you're stuck in your sins and you'll be judged for your sins. But the Bible says, if you repent and change your mind and say, I choose to believe and accept that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose up from the grave, just like the Bible says, then it says there, you will be saved. What a glorious truth that is. It's so amazing. It's not even really asking much of you. I mean, for you and me to believe that Jesus did that and confess it and accept it, it's so profoundly easy. We find ourselves almost thinking it's too easy, so it's too good to be true. But my argument is it's so good, it has to be true. And in the deepest part of your conscience, you know it to be true, that you have a need. And man's greatest need is God's greatest deed. God gave us a child that was born, a son given, bearing the government on his shoulders, becoming the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And it's your job to accept that. I'd love to encourage you to do that. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 tells you how to do that. It says, if you confess with your mouth, that means just to speak it out with your mouth, and believe in your heart, that's not fake, and just say, yeah, yeah, I believe it, kind of. No, in your heart, say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the grave. It says, you will be saved. Read it for yourself. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Powerful. That's the salvation that God has provided for all of humanity. So if you've been that stubborn person, soften your heart this morning, accept Christ, and be saved and be forgiven of your sins. That's where it's at. If you're a Christian, this verse should make your heart jump for joy. And would you just meditate on this verse for the next week or so and just, just kind of camp out here on this verse? What a glorious truth, all these things we've talked about. Hey, if you're one who has accepted Christ or is doing that right now, um, we'd love to hear from you. We won't ask anything of you. We won't ask you for money or anything. But we'd love to first hear if that's you. If you have accepted Jesus, then there's, there's going to be a number at the bottom of your screen there that you can just, um, you can just uh, text us and say, New Believer. And then we'll know, man, there's somebody else we need to be praying for, and we'll pray for you. And that, we could just stop it right there. If you want something, if you need a Bible, or if you need prayer, or you want to talk to a pastor, that's available, and just let us know. You can also let us know, and we'll, we'll show you how to, you can contact us for further help and encouragement. But we don't want anything from you other than just, we just want to help you if you need help. 
So uh, that's, a, that's there for you. Take advantage of it, and we'd love to hear from you. The rest of you, man, let's, let's, uh, let's just rejoice as uh, we've got so much to be thankful for. Let's pray. And Father, we are so thankful for this glorious gift that you gave to humanity, that you would come and live among us, visiting us, dying on the cross for us. Oh, Lord, help us to see you as the one who bore the government on your shoulders. Lord, we don't have to be under that burden of the laws and of our own sin, but you took that burden yourself. Thank you, Lord, for being our wonderful counselor, our mighty God and our everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Lord, I pray that the burden of all that would be lifted and that we just come to you on this Sunday afternoon rejoicing for what you've done for us. We applaud you, we worship you, we give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We encourage you to take advantage of our media ministry by visiting us at athecreek.com anytime. There we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download. 